Hello and welcome back to Absurdity. I am joined by my fellow collared col colleague, Henry Johnson. I almost messed up that one. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I almost said uh, collared colleague. That's what I, I almost say, did said. Did you say collared just col seems, colleague? You know, there's like, co-ed you know. leagues and there's leagues. I don't think there's co-leagues. I don't know that that's a thing. So, um, but I am joined by Henry Johnson as always. And today we have a very... Uh, awesome, very special guest that I'm very excited about, mainly because back when uh, Henry and I were doing A Beautiful Faith, which is the podcast that we started together and then eventually uh, molded into absurdity, the one of the big pushes that we made, it was like a it was a general thing that we said every single episode. We had this big rant on therapy. We said always, always, uh, we always advocated for therapy to and and yep. we weren't like blind about it, too. There are. You can you can have negative experiences with therapists like any other doctor or, or anyone too. We weren't just saying like go to therapy and automatically your life will be better, but rather invest in therapy and invest in yourself and go through the process of healing and of building yourself up and and you know discovering the person that you, that you were called to mm -hmm. be and meant to be. And so we have had a few uh, licensed counselors and therapists on the show, but today we are joined by uh, one more, which is Tyler Patrick. He is a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in uh, sexual recovery from sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. And he's the co-founder of Love Strong, which is an organization that focuses its efforts on helping men and women through sexual addiction recover uh, recovery, betrayal trauma healing, and trauma therapy. And they do this through life coaching and therapy as well. He also is the co-founder of the Rising Sun Conference, uh, which is a conference that is meant to uh, help men grow into the person and the man that they're called to be. It's meant to help them find freedom uh, and and find a lot of growth and connection with others. There's a, a big part of healing, I think, is is through community, and that's that is a major thing that that gatherings like that can offer. And he also is either the host or the co-host of three. Oh, excuse me. Something got caught in my throat. Three different podcasts. Um, so he's got us beat with, uh, and my personal favorite of the three, by the way, is Therapy Brothers. I, I think you and uh, Brandon, mm -hmm. your brother, are, are, are fantastic on that show. I love the call-in aspect of it. Um, so you can check all of that out at lovestrong.com in our show notes. But Tyler, you've got quite the credential list there. Uh, welcome to the show. <laughs> Well, thank you. It's actually a pleasure to be with you guys. I listen to your podcast. I think you do a phenomenal job tackling some of the topics you tackle. So I'm grateful to be here. Thank you. And hey, even if you didn't think we did a phenomenal job, we'd love to have you anyway. <laughs> We're waiting for someone to just come on and disagree and and, and take us on, you know. Um, they'll be wrong, but they're welcome to do it. I, That's you know, right. <laughs> no, but Tyler, it is, it is great to be here. And thank you for listening to the show, too. I, um, I'm always... I am always humbled and honored when someone takes, you know, decides to take the time to listen, especially when our episodes are an hour long. So uh, it, it is really meaningful to us. The so th the topic today, we are talking about building resilience to shame and shame is no stranger to this show as a topic and, and something that we've covered several times and or at least alluded to. And what's interesting is Henry and I even ourselves have a, have different understandings of of shame and guilt as they are different or in, in, in their similarities too. So this is one of those areas where, where I think Henry and I have a, a pretty holistic view between the two of us without really any like direct conflict, but rather just different perspectives. And so to add in someone who's far more qualified than us in this area uh, is really, really going to be interesting. The, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I'm probably more qualified just in the sense that I've experienced a whole bunch of it myself too. Oh, so amen. <laughs> uh, well, I I didn't expect the personal attacks. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> it's like man, we're just starting off early. Well, then we all have PhDs. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, no, and that's and that's one reason we're really excited, Tyler, that you reached out and and are we're willing to come be with us because I, I know you talk about we all have shame and it's something that we all deal with, but it's something I know Ryan and I deal with a lot in our, in our communities. And I know watching several of your testimonies and videos you have as well. When you grow up a person of faith and yet alone in more conservative traditions of faith, right? That shame almost becomes a really key component of those experiences. 
and I don't necessarily mean that in a nefarious way, as in these institutions are like, ah, we're going to use shame to do whatever. But I think it's become a natural byproduct of poor understandings of different topics and, and, and sometimes even just outright poor theologies. And so uh, we thought, you know, as people of faith, it's great to not only talk about emotional well-being, because, you know, that's something that, that the Western church has neglected for decades and, and it shows. Right. You know, we used to be like, fine, go, you know, if your heart has a problem, go to a cardiologist. If your lungs have a problem, you know, go to the doctor. But the moment your mind supposedly has a problem, it's a lack of faith. And and I think we've really suffered for that. And it's created even more shame. So you get into that shame cycle. And and so we're just really excited to say, you know, now's the time. Let's have that conversation. Let's have someone far more qualified than us uh, come out and talk to us, mm-hmm. not only about that importance, but about shame, which is something that probably a lot of us don't view as is a mental issue per se, but I think really impacts us mentally and emotionally. And I mean, it's a key part of our life. So we just, we're just really excited to jump in today and, and you can educate us really about the, the shame experience yeah. and, and how to find, yeah, you, you know, you bet. I, I, success I agree it, with you. I, I, uh, I in spite of it, in so. one of those tr- kind of Christian traditional homes that really was well-intended, you know, trying to live a certain set of principles, but the way that those things got taught, to a boy who was growing up were interpreted in certain ways that actually did get twisted into some pretty rigid and negative things that I don't think, I don't even think the doctrine itself was necessarily wrong. It was the way that it was portrayed and the way that it was interpreted that then led to a lot of, a lot of pain and struggle in the sense that I, you find yourself trying to do your very best, but never being able to quite measure up and never hitting the mark, which then means there's something wrong with mm. you to the point that if people were to see it, they wouldn't want you or they would reject you. And uh, and I think that that's not just inside the church. That's a human condition. I think the church at times has unwittingly led to that and, and, and exacerbated that problem. But, but it is part of the human condition that we all experience shame on a certain level. And shame being that by definition is the belief that I am so flawed that if somebody saw it, they wouldn't want me. So I, there's something in my nature that makes me unlovable. Mm. And, and when we live from that place, that then leads to a lot of other problems in our lives that, uh, that actually pulls us further and further away from the thing that we were born for, which is connection. Mm. Absolutely. That's, that's powerful. And, and this idea that something innately is, is wrong with me or, or something is... I, I, I tie this a lot back to what I think is a very... Uh, dangerous and fine line within this the culture of humility in the church. Uh, this idea that, and pastors get this a lot because if a, if a pastor, uh, and and this is something Henry and I have both experienced within our denomination, when you know you preach a sermon, you get off that that platform and you're talking with members, and they'll they'll tell you, you know, great sermon, pastor, great sermon, and and the the number one the go to response is praise God. You can't ever say thank you. You can't ever actually you know, acknowledge, uh, acknowledge the skills themselves that God has yeah. put you in, God has put in you and the talent and the experiences there, but you must always deflect. And even me now, I I've stepped into podcast coaching and, and mentoring in a lot more significant way. And I actually have trouble even confidently saying that I'm good at what I do because I, I feel like I'm being arrogant. I feel like I'm being prideful. I feel like there's something wrong in me and I can't acknowledge what is good in me. And that is something that I think is has had a profound effect on a significant number of people, and especially men, whose a lot a lot of their worth and value is determined by their ability to accomplish and do. So that's massive. Uh, absolutely, I I think that the point you're bringing out here is really important because it's that's the insidious nature of how shame works is that it can package itself up like humility. And we've all been taught that humility is, is this idea that we have to self-deprecate all the time. We can never be good at something. We can never accept, you know, that we're actually talented because that means we're arrogant or prideful when in reality, and this is something that I've come to over the years of my practice and also just in the process of my own struggles in life is that the definition of humility that I like better than the one that I was raised with is agreeing with God on everything he says about me, mm. which means that I can accept the positive things and the, and the strengths and all of the gifts that I've been given. And I can mm. also acknowledge that I have 
that I have weaknesses and that I have struggles and that I can go to work on those things and, and I can improve those things, but I can agree on all of it. If I'm going to accept all the negative, I've got to be willing to accept the positive as well. And that's what real humility actually is. Hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, first of all, that's really powerful. And second of all, I think you've hit even on a, a scriptural principle anyway, that we usually miss, you know, and that's, and that famous axiom of the Lord, where he says, love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, love for yourself is a, is a prerequisite. You know, I cannot extend that love if I've trashed myself at the same time as somehow being beneath them or, or something else. And, and, you know, we've talked about it on this, on this podcast as well. We've said humility is not thinking less of yourself, like you're garbage. It's just thinking of yourself less, you know, I'm not the center of my universe, but that well, doesn't mean Henry, that I'm you not are valued, slightly the, that I don't like have something off to contribute center of my universe. Cause God has to be the center. But I want you to know that you're like the off center of my, you're like right there. Um, <laughs> No, I, I love that. I think all, everything that you both have shared is, is really, really important. And, and one of the things that's always interesting is it's so easy to accept and agree with everything God says about someone else, right? The, the value and the, the worth and importance, but never about ourselves. And that is, that is just, I love the way you put that. I actually have never heard it expressed that specific way before. So I really, already I've gotten you know, we can end the the show here. I got what I needed today. Um, <laughs> um, the no, this is awesome. Yeah. So I mean, I'm already going to use it. We start work, with definitions. So, no, We've clearly spoiler. laid out a bunch already. So we're. I think we're good to go here and, and operating out of those. So I guess my question is: We're talking about resilience to shame now. So so what does what does resilience to shame actually look like? What do you mean when you when you use those terms? And why resilience specifically? Okay, that's a that's a good question. And we may have to kind of back up and explain what the cycle of shame mm. looks like a little bit to get to, to resilience. But the idea is this, uh, in a nutshell, is that most of us hear the word shame and we think instantly bad. If I feel shame, that means I'm bad. If I experience shame, that means I'm bad. When in reality... Shame is part of the human existence. It's, it's something we all experience. It's something that's pretty unavoidable. And so we're not ever going to necessarily cure our shame. The reason I use resilience is because I need to learn how to navigate through my shame. I need to learn how to handle it. I need to learn how to suffer less with it, maybe avoid it more because I can develop, you know, some other resiliency things. But but to not define myself as bad if I still feel shame from time to time, because it is part of the human mm. experience. Wow. That's, I like that. Um, this idea that, that there's probably always going to be a little bit of, of, of shame there. There's always going to be something mainly because we aren't perfect. And I think there's, there's always these little trip ups and hiccups in the road. And one of the things, when you look at something like, uh, I know that you've, you've done, uh, EMDR, uh, eye movement desensitization. Is that, is that right? Or, um, Yep. And mm -hmm. uh, this idea of doing a lot of memory work, this idea of diving into the, the, the ways that your uh, that your your body stores and remembers trauma and how that impacts you. I was I was listening to one of your therapy brothers episodes and you were mentioning the story of a, of a girl who was having nightmares and having really a hard time sleeping. And through through that memory work, you were able to basically identify it was a flashing red light that she would fixate on as she was as she was trying to just survive through a and sustain herself through a very very traumatic uh, abuse a, as a child and there was a flashing red light in her room as an adult and her body was doing was basically reacting the same way so yeah that's why i think and i agree that shame is something that might be present in some ways that we just we're going to continually discover all the different ways that our lives have impacted us and it's important to have the tools to deal with that Absolutely. I we we live in a shame-based world. I mean, if you look at if you look at the currency of how communication happens today, I mean, just turn on the TV and watch the advertisements. Every advertisement on the television, even though it's packaged up in really beautiful ways, is designed to make you feel less than so that you'll buy something to make yourself feel better than. And uh, the dialogues that we have back and forth, you turn on the normal the normal media and the news, it's it's a currency of shame and criticism. That's what sells advertising mm -hmm. dollars. 
and so we do live in a world where shame is constantly being thrown at us. And you, and you brought out a really good point here that I think is important to understand is that we live in a world where there's trauma that happens to us, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And some of us go through really big traumas. We go through these massive things, kind of like the example you just talked about. But we also sometimes go through these small traumas. You know, I was, I was raised in a home that I didn't even realize it was traumatic to be told certain things. I had a father who was so proud of me. He believed in me so much that he set such a high expectation that I was never going yeah. to be able to achieve it. That for a young boy, the oldest of five children who needs to set a good example and be a good follower of Christ, like that can be traumatic to that boy. It was for me growing up and it was never intended to be. But but those little traumas, what ends up happening is, is that we interpret those things. That's That's the breeding ground for where shame can take hold. When we have these moments of trauma in our life and we all have them. We come to a crossroads in those moments of trauma and we either become resilient to them and we see God's hand and purpose and meaning in the experience we're having, or we begin to believe a story that says, this is proof. This is proof that you're not good enough. Or one of my beliefs as I grew up was the only way that I'll ever be good enough is if I perform. So if I excel in my sports and if I'm the, get the terrific kid award at school, and if I'm on mm -hmm. church leadership stuff, then that means I'll be lovable. And when I interpret that message and then start to live from that place, then when I have new experiences, it's seen through that lens. And then that lens continues to feed the same story. And that's where shame roots itself in our lives is that we begin to believe a story that we don't even realize was a choice to believe in the first place because mm -hmm. it just happened as a default as we were being raised and as we're growing and having wow. these life experiences. Powerful. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really resonate when you were talking about that, this this unintended culture of shame that tra traumatizes us without realizing it. And I, and I think the most powerful traumas are the ones that people don't realize we're inflicting on each other or we inflict it on someone with the intent of some good out of it. And so we don't really view it as a trauma. I think a lot of what happens in, in Western Christianity even is we've twisted a narrative that should be against shame and kind of presented it like Stockholm syndrome and a, and a version of shame, you know, and, and it compels us that way and traumatizes us without realizing it. Right. You know, you're trying, I mean, the gospel, sometimes the way we present it as a whole is that, you know, look how bad, but look how good. And therefore if you, you flip. And so you start from a position <laughs> of shame, <laughs> you know, you're horrible, but the good news is, is that God isn't horrible. So you can, can whatever, but in the interest of trying to, yes, make people's lives better by directing them to God, you've mm. actually reimposed shame as the foundation work for that relationship. I suck, but he doesn't. And, you know, this is the way I can not suck anymore. Well, if you start from a position that the default is always I suck, that, that's you, you've asked right, yourself. Right. For shame and I, I would say that trauma. I love what you're saying there in my own mind. I have this idea of how how shame resiliency work. Actually, it really works. And we can kind of get into the, some of the nuts and bolts of this in a minute. But um, we we accept what I believe is a callus that gets put over our true nature when we have those experiences that say you're not enough. You'll, you'll never measure up unless you do the X, Y or Z. We begin to believe that that's the truth when in reality, that's a callus that's been put over the, the actual true nature of who we are. And, and part of the work of shame resiliency is the work of breaking through that callus that's formed without us realizing it and accepting the truth, which was underneath it all along, of I am. Instead of operating from a place of I'm not blank enough, I'm not skinny enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not rich enough, I'm not you know performing enough, Really, what we have to come to is we we have to break through all of that, and we have to come to a place of something that was already inside of us, which is the I am mm. concept. Who does God say I am? You know, think of what Christ says in the scriptures. He says, I am. He's the most humble person in the world. And what did he say? I am the true vine. I'm the bread of life. I'm the way, the truth, the life. Like, that's humility. Yeah, it is because he understood his true nature. He understood exactly who he was. And, and that to me is what shame resiliency work is, is it's continually trying to unearth the truth of who we were all along, but that we've forgotten because our life experiences mm. pull us away from that. Mm. 
Would you say it's a, it's a process of swapping intrinsic for imposed realities? So in other words, that our shame, you're using the, the framework of a callus, but that we're taking imposed realities and begin to confuse them with intrinsic value. So now I think the imposed exactly. is been, actually my intrinsic when it's Because it's so automatic. And because oftentimes we have these things happen so quickly, and especially when we're younger and we don't have a brain that can actually process those things, we just interpret everything from kind of an egocentric place, which is that the world revolves around us. So if everything falls apart, if my parents get divorced, that means something's wrong with me. If I have a health problem, that means something must be wrong with me. And so that never actually mm. gets to be seen until you go back and do the work that you're talking about, like EMDR or some of these other things that we work on with shame resiliency. But yes, exactly. It's learning to work again from the inside out instead of just accepting what the outside in has taught us that yeah. we think is just true. That's really powerful. And I think I, I love this too, because just within the Christian framework and which by the way, if, if someone's not listening to this and you're not Christian, you are fully welcome to be a part of this conversation. There's nothing here that we're not, we're not being dogmatic about this, but that is a commonality that all three of us share. So we'll speak to it. Uh, and, and I think this idea of, of accepting and discovering who we were meant, who we were all along that really goes along right along with, with the overall narrative of scripture. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is they start the narrative from Genesis three. They start from the moment that, that there was sin and that there was a mistake made. But Genesis one is where the Bible actually starts. That's where the narrative actually starts. And that's where God created everything and said it was good. And everything that happens after that, well, yes, it, it does. There is the fall. There is everything that happens as a consequence of the fall, but there's also the restoration. And that this idea that God will restore all things to the way they were supposed to be, the way they were uh, at the beginning. And it's the same deal, you know, within this model, it's the same, it's the same idea of, of restoring the image of yourself that was there all along and helping you see it and helping you just, you know, with clarity and, and with understanding and acceptance. So that's awesome. Love it. Yeah, I, I I love the I love the scripture reference you had in Genesis because I actually believe that that's where shame starts is with Adam and Eve and they were good, and they partook of the fruit and then if you if you read the, mm -hmm. the scriptures they were cast out of the garden for their sake and then they and they were put into a world where there were thorns and thistles to curse them for their sake and it was basically God's way of helping them learn to become more of who they should be. But they, but they had to do it through those trials and struggles because a loving God wanted to help them. And, and what they did is when they partook of the fruit, what did they do? They heard the serpent say, hey, basically you're naked, hide, quick, cover up. And this is exactly what happens for us with shame in our world today is that when we have something happen in our life that we feel shame over, the natural response is to do just like Adam and even recognize our nakedness and we pull ourselves away. And this is really powerful. Adam and Eve withdrew themselves from the presence of God and hid from him. They actually took connection away because they were feeling ashamed and they listened to the wrong voice. And in reality, where we want to be going because we were created this way is into a place of connection where we're living a life of connection, not only with God, but with other people. And even with ourselves, being able to live with a connected heart and mind instead of having to disappear from all these stories that we tell ourselves. And I think that started that started from the very beginning. Yeah. We read about it in Genesis. Yeah, the, the worst prison is that which is in your mind. I, I think that the, the key Hebrew phraseology that mm. keeps going in Genesis 2 and 3 is Genesis 2 ends with, and they were naked and not ashamed. Um, and I know churches, we all get bent out of shape. No, they had a covering of light or what, you know, everyone freaks out. It's like, no, they can't be walking around nude. But I, I think the main point it's trying to get at is that these two could be fully transparent with one another and have no fear that there was something that the other wouldn't accept about the other, that there was something wrong about them. And the, and the key lie is not that, you know, the, the, in, the thing in Genesis 3 that shows there's a problem it's not that it's changed and all of a sudden they go, oh, no, I'm naked. You know, the, the thing is, it says they realize they were naked. There, there's a focus now turning inward and becoming obsessed with, oh, no, what about my state? And there's this idea, like you said, that now we have to hide a part of ourselves. Now there's something that's not would not be acceptable if someone else saw it. And and like you said, I think that's really powerful. And I'm sure you see it a ton in, in, in your realm of work and, and as 
as a church, we're dealing with it more and more. And I wish that clergy would would have more of an emphasis on emotional well-being when they're coming out of seminaries and other things, uh, because we tend to be the cheap option. People are terrified of going to therapists at first. So they think, oh, I'll go to the pastor. He can't say anything and it doesn't cost me money. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I don't have. I don't have insurance to cover the lawsuit that's going to come my way trying to, <laughs> to help them in that way. Um, that, that's where I have to go. You need to talk to Tyler. Uh, so, um, but, but yeah, it's like you said, these stories we tell ourselves, this prison we've created in our own mind and how do we declutter from that? How do we pull back out of that? Yep. And, and reach that point where yeah, we're I'd love to outline the cycle and then I'd love to end the cycle really Yep, quickly. and then I'd love to dive That'd in. Right. Let's get into those nuts and bolts. What are those first steps and how do we how do we go through this cycle? That was the segue. <laughs> okay, sounds good. So the cycle starts with that belief. I am basically blank and you can fill in your own. I'm unworthy, I'm bad, I'm unlovable. My personal favorite one for myself is failure. Like I constantly live with this fear of letting my family and my kids down um, and never not quite measuring up. That belief leads to a second belief, and the second belief starts to form that says, if people really see me, if they know me the way that I know myself, they're not going to love me. And that's scary for us because we're wired for connection and attachment. As human beings, we can't survive without it. Uh, the, the worst thing we can do to somebody is put them in sol solitary confinement, right? So we now believe there's something wrong with us. And so what we do is we, in order to protect ourselves from being seen, we create our own prison walls without realizing it. We put on masks and the masks look all sorts of different ways. We overperform. You know, I'm a workaholic by nature. Uh, the, the most spiritual guy at church probably has a lot of shame that he's trying to cover up because he doesn't know how to like let people in. Um, we either overperform or underperform. And then we feel, even though we might have a lot of people around us that we're friendly with, we don't let anybody in. We feel isolated and alone. And that leads to a third belief that says, I can't rely on other people to help me, or I can't, I can't trust others. The manly way of saying that is, you know, like I, I should be strong enough to take care of things on my own. So now, now we're trying to be perfect, but we're in a lot of pain. We've got these beliefs that we're carrying and then life happens and we have a fight with our wives or we get stressed at work or we get sick or we're hungry or lonely or tired, or whatever. And we end up seeking out what's called the mood altering experience. And that's where we turn to pornography or sex or drugs or alcohol or spending money or video games. Like all of these things are, are things that we turn to, to self-medicate from the pain that we feel because we can't let other people in and they work powerfully. They work really well. Our brain goes, thank you. Like, I don't have to worry about that anymore. I get some satiation. I get some respite. Um, but then in the aftermath, we either feel guilty because those things don't line up with our values or we feel numb. Things sort of kind of go into like the gray scale and life just feels like it loses its color and its vibrance. And either the guilt or the numbness mm -hmm. should be a sign that we need to actually climb out of the hole and do something different. But for us, we just use that as proof that we suck. And so then the cycle continues and we're in this negative spiral where we end up down at the bottom of a hole going, how did I get here? I keep doing these things I don't want to do. I don't like myself and I'm proving that I'm bad over and over again. And then that spiral continues and we find ourselves stuck. And so the goal, like when we're overcoming this is to, to actually learn how to break the whole cycle. And people come into my, my office and they'll say, well, I've got a pornography problem or I've got a drug problem. Let's overcome that problem. The problem itself, the behavior itself is usually just the fruit of a plant that has much deeper roots. And so we want to break the whole cycle. We want to actually, the opposite of any type of an addiction type thing is not sobriety, meaning we don't act out anymore. The opposite of that is adopting what we call a lifestyle of connection. And we look at connection in three ways, a pursuit of an ongoing wrestle with a higher power, God, or something bigger than myself, the pursuit of a transparent and honest life where I can live in connection with other people and then let them see me, not everybody, but a few people actually see all of me. And then pursuing a connection with myself, heart and mind and understanding my true nature instead of listening to the lies that I've listened to for so long. And there's some things that we do to kind of move into practicing yeah, I, I that think kind of resilience. A lot of that is powerful and things that I've seen just in myself. I, I uh, was in therapy a while back with with someone who one of the requirements as I was dealing with a with a pornography addiction, and I and I knew that it was rooted in in something. The 
uh, one of the requirements was that I attended regular um, essay meetings, which is Sexaholics Anonymous. And it was, I either had to do that or get involved with a, with a, uh, I forget, Celebrate Recovery um, or, or, or one of those programs. Now, as someone who was a pastor, Celebrate Recovery and the faith-based ones are really hard because you sit there with the, you know, being told the things that you learned like day one, right? Um, but the, the essay groups were hard because <laughs> the accountability was nice and the, the idea of making the daily commitment and going through those, uh, those six, uh, those six statements, that was, that was meaningful. But at the same time, it was only treating a symptom and it wasn't treating the, the actual core issue. And I think that's what a lot of, a lot of people will, will set up tools, you know, they'll set mm -hmm. up accountability to keep them from, from going to these places. For me, the accountability never works. I used to work in IT. I know my way around all the apps. I know my way around all the filters and all the firewalls. And at the end of the day, it always came down to just a battle of, am I going to do it or not? And, but dealing with the core issues and actually learning how to process some of my grief and my trauma, that was what I think started to make the biggest difference in my personal battle with it. And so I think there's a lot there that is really meaningful in what you've shared. That's a that's a beautiful story that you shared too, where I think you're pointing out, uh, you're illustrating a really important part here, which is when we struggle with these things, we feel like we don't have room for compassion or love for ourselves. When in reality, one of the biggest answers that we have to actually overcoming those struggles is to lay down all of our self-judgment and actually allow room for you to look at yourself the way you did mm -hmm. and say, you know what, there's room for some grief here. There's room for some sadness. There's room for some, some compassion as well. And, and that's the way through it. And in reality, mm. most people think wow. that that's playing. That's powerful. And for men, that's, a, that's an hook. even bigger thing when we're told we can't feel, you know, we, we believe that we can't feel. So. Well, isn't even that response that we're letting someone off the hook or that we're being soft a manifestation of our own trauma and the fact that we felt like no one gave us the space to get off easy. No one gave us the ability to climb out of this hole. And since we're trapped, by golly, they might as well be trapped with us because that's it, you know, because there's, there's that innate selfishness, too, where it's like, I don't want them free if I can't be. I've been working at this longer. I don't want to see them waltz into the therapist's office and come out in a year and be like, I'm free. And I've been like, I've been trying for 10. That's right. Yeah. You know. Well, that, that's, that, but that's the currency we live with is, and we all do that. We're critical on ourselves thinking we're going to change ourselves when in reality, the, the, there's a study that was done by, I uh, haven't, Duke I actually university. Haven't. Have you guys heard of the donut study? Um, they it's, it's, yes. it's a kind of a cool study. They brought in a bunch of like co-ed women into the, into the lab. And in the first room, they had them eat a donut really quickly and then drink a big glass of water. And they were purposely trying to make them feel a little disgusted with themselves. And then they would walk them down the room, down the hallway to a new room. And when they opened the door, there was a table of a bunch of different kinds of chocolate. And they were asked to eat as much chocolate as they needed to, to do an accurate taste test on all the chocolate. And, uh, and as they were walking down the hallway, half of the women were just left to their own thoughts and weren't talked to at all. And the other half of the women received a message of self-forgiveness from the, from the researcher. And the researcher would turn to them and say, hey, just so you know, when people eat a donut really fast and drink a big glass of water, they feel pretty disgusted with themselves. Don't be. Everybody indulges once in a while. It's not a big deal. You're going to be okay. And then they go in and do the taste test. The findings, the research are pretty interesting because the, the women who did not get a message of self-forgiveness they over doubled ate the chocolate. They ate over 70 grams of chocolate compared to the women who ate, who got the message mm. of self-forgiveness and they ate 29 grams of chocolate. And so then the thought was, well, why did this happen? And what they're coming to the conclusion of is, is that, that forgiveness and love happen to be much more powerful motivators for change than criticism and shame. And yet we live in a world that that deals in criticism and shame, then we wonder why nobody's able to change. Uh, well, it's maybe because we're using the wrong fuel source. Wow. And uh, just kind of a really cool, interesting study on that. <laughs> yeah, right? No, it makes me, it makes me wonder, Henry, I mean, even what you the shared. Gospel uh, versus uh, legalism. You know, I, I've, I've <laughs> so often gone off thought. on uh, parents, and I actually see this a lot because I work in college recruiting where parents will, they say that they're working hard and, and want to provide a better mm -hmm. life for their child, but the second they're child actually has the better life 
they suddenly start manipulating, abusing, or controlling them to say, well, you need to be more grateful because I didn't have this or I didn't have that. And this, and, and it makes me wonder if those kind of conversations or the conversations about even student loan forgiveness, if a lot of that is actually rooted, rooted in shame, not just even selfishness, but just straight up shame and, this, this, and a little bit of envy as well. And so, yeah, that I hadn't thought about it from that perspective before, but that I, I think that's really powerful. Um, so, when, when going through the, when, when looking at shame and, and identifying it within yourself, because I think there's been a lot of people listening to this just raising their hand, going, you know, I, why are you personally attacking me? Um, <laughs> I didn't know I was, I didn't know this episode was about me personally. The, you know, what are those first steps that someone takes? Where, when you, when you, when you're saying that's me, me too. What what do you do next? Good question. So we we talk about something that we call the three C's of shame resiliency when I start teaching my clients how to overcome these things. And so the first C is context. When we feel shame, we go into this tunnel where we feel like everything is only about us that we're the only ones you know my my forte is in sexual addiction and i have i can't tell you how many guys have come into my office and they're like yeah i'm the only guy i know who's got a pornography problem and then when we actually use some context and we broaden out and say well let's just look at the statistics on pornography use how much have you spent on pornography in the last year and he's like i don't spend money i just do the free stuff and then you go okay well the porn industry is a hundred billion dollar a year industry right now so, and you're not paying for it so who's paying for it and then they go, oh, like, I'm not the only one. Like, this is a problem that is a human problem. And when I can actually go and do some research and say, okay, whatever my problem is, if I can add some context to it, what looks like a really dark thing, when you start to get a broader lens, you start to say, oh, wow, not only am I not only the only one, but there's actually some hope here. There's actually some ways through this. There's actually a way to actually navigate this that I didn't ever think was possible. And so taking the time to do some research on the nature of my problems, to get a bigger, broader context and a better understanding is the first C, where um, mm. where you're pulling yourself out of the um, tunnel instead of continuing to go further down the tunnel. No, go ahead. Mm. Now, a quick question on the C real quick, unless Ryan, you wanna jump first. Uh, I, I was just going to say, in, in light of you talk about context, again, in light of the context that we're all facing today in a more polarized political and societal environment, uh, you know, you were talking and it almost made me wonder at first, I, I wonder if sometimes our transient nature now, even with facts and all of this is a response to shame to the point where I just, since I don't know how to deal with it, I'll just make it up or ignore it and say it's not real, and then maybe I'll feel better, but now you're trapped from getting any context to, to assist you. So I'm, I'm just curious, in the emotional well-being field in therapy, is, is that something you guys are having to wrestle with more now when you're trying to come to them and go, well, it's a $100 billion a year industry, and who's paying for it? I mean, are people that are usually coming to you desperate enough that they're just happy the facts are supporting a way out? Or are they more like, no, that can't be, you know, it's still just me and I, I'm determined to feel like I'm the only one. So that's, that's a lie. No one's going to admit that they're paying for porn. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's actually a good question. If we look at it in the broader context a little bit here, I actually think that that's part of what's causing us a lot of our mental health problems is, is that we're all on our own social media feeds, and you would easily be able to pick up on what my political preferences were if you were to go scroll through my YouTube channel or my Facebook thing. And I can get facts, quote facts, all day long about the things that line up with what I want to hear. It actually takes a little bit more work for me to actually go and try to put together the facts on my side versus the facts on the other side, and then try to find out what the actual truth is. And, and I actually believe that all of that, all of the discourse that we see in Washington, D.C., all of that is based off of a shame, that the, the currency is still shame there. And we're, and we're all paying the price for it as a result, because we never actually get to a place where we can look for the kernels of truth in both sides, because we're so set on making sure that we're right. And, uh, and the other person has to be wrong as a result. And and that's what shame does is it's rigid. It's, it's controlling. It doesn't allow for that flexibility. And, uh, you know, to, for, to, to speak to my clients, most of my clients, 
Mm-hmm. They're they're kind of relieved well, think, to hear that they're not the only ones, so they don't often question yeah. the statistics. I think that's I think that's really powerful. This idea of the mm-hmm. other person so they're, has they're to finding be the wrong, info free. And I, and I, yeah, I think the question sense. becomes, what yeah. does that mean for me if I'm wrong, or what does that mean about me if I'm wrong? And so there's there's so much doubling down that happens, and I can. Regardless of political opinion, one way or the other, I, I, I can actually see this very, very realistically as a possibility for someone like Ted Cruz, who's who was insulted during the presidential campaign in 2016, downright insulted by Trump, and then several months later is now doing campaign calls for Trump. And this idea of as time goes on, he has to like there's there's no if if you're wrong, and if you were wrong to do that, what does that say about 2016? Ted Cruz that that said I would never I would never go along with this and and there's this it, it's just this this tunnel that you end up going down further and further for me that was absolutely that was uh, my pornography addiction um, what does it mean for me if I can't what does it mean for me if I can't do this uh, and 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 even social media as escapism video games as escapism it, it, there there's so much that is or workahol you know workaholic workaholism is that is that what i want um the I, i've seen so many people struggling through divorce or th- just through a breakup mm-hmm. or just struggling emotionally with whatever they're dealing with in their life who drown it in work they just stay busy and stay distracted and as a result they never actually deal with the pain and uh the grief that they're actually facing down in their personal life so Yeah. Yeah. That the 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 main thing that you said there is is that it's the what what then? If I'm wrong blank. And it's that story that we believe and that we actually hold people to that doesn't allow for that. Like if I'm not allowed to be wrong, then let's say I'm in my workplace and I'm not allowed to be wrong or else I'm going to be fired. Well, now when I am wrong, I'm going to cover it up, I'm going to hide it, I'm going to try to disappear, I'm going to look for a way to pass the buck. It's all going to roll downhill. And and what that does is it robs us it would rob me of being able to be creative at my job. It would rob me of being able to take a few risks that might actually help the company, even if I might fail, because there's no room for failure. Because if I fail, that means blank. I'm not good enough. It doesn't mean I made a mistake. It means mm. you, you're defining so yourself as what are, something what are some instead ways of just letting be a shame, mistake. You know, often manifests in mm. someone's life. You know, what what? How can I start to see it if I if I really don't realize or think that I have any? Amen. Yeah. The, uh, the, the work of Brene Brown, she's probably the biggest one, uh, in the, in the world right now with, with shame resiliency. Uh, she uses, she uses some language called the shame screens. And then she talks about three shame screens. And what will happen is, is that when we're in shame, we throw up these screens like smoke screens. So people can't see us. And the three shame screens are the first one is, is that we push against, meaning we get defensive, we get blaming, we try to pass the buck, we want to fight with people. It's almost a form of distraction away from that thing we're most vulnerable Mm. over. And what we're trying to do is protect ourselves, but what we end up doing is we end up with less connection. So that's the push against shame screen. Uh, Then there's a move towards shame screen, which is the pleaser where I'm going to, I'm going to make sure everybody sees that I'm a good person. I'm never going to say no to anybody. And I'm going to make sure everybody is taken Mm. care of and that I'm seen as a good person. And then you burn yourself out and you get resentful and you struggle with those things. Uh, and then the, uh, then the last shame screen is moving away, which is where we sort of just disappear. We pull away, we let go of connection, we go hide under our covers in the bed and get depressed. Um, and what we end up doing is we end up robbing ourselves and the world of the influence mm-hmm. that we could provide to the world because we're not allowing ourselves to operate from a place of truth. And so those are like, if you see those things happening in yourself or even more powerfully, sometimes you can see those things happening in others. You can understand how to duck underneath all three of those shame screens and to speak right at the heart of the matter, which is, hey, it looks like you're having a rough time right now. Or, wow, if I was in your shoes, I could imagine I would be feeling a little bit overwhelmed or feeling like a little bit of a failure. And you know what? I just I just want you to know that I see you and I love you. Um, we don't get caught up in that mm. dialogue that's... Wow fueled by shame, if we can see those shame screens and then move below them. So, so, so God in Genesis three was basically a certified family and counseling therapist. 
right? Because you're talking about this and I'm thinking of Adam and Eve and they're all doing the same thing. They immediately hide and that doesn't work. So now we're blaming, we're putting the screen up. We're shifting. Well, it's the one you made. Well, it's the one you made, you know, and, and, and doing that. And then God shows up and is like, well, who told you that? You know, it's not coming from me. Uh, something else has gone wrong. Is this, and you know, I, I still you love think, you. Let's get through this. So um, oh, I was just going to ask, really do you think stuff. that there is really any sort that. of good form or good manifestation um, of shame? Is there a go ahead, form of it? Or do you, uh, would you classify our umbrella kind of all shame that we experience as bad? That's a good question. I think we get into semantics a lot during this part of the topic because we talk about shame and healthy shame versus toxic shame or shame versus guilt. Um, the way that we teach it here is, is we talk about something called toxic shame and toxic shame is what we've been talking about right now. Um, healthy shame and guilt would be the same thing in our language. And so guilt is actually a good emotion. Guilt is when we have the experience of having messed up mm. or done something wrong, that piece of us knows that we did something wrong and we go, Oh dang, I got, I got to correct that. I got to figure this out. Um, guilt is a motivator. It moves us to action. Whereas shame is a paralyzer. And it says, you know, guilt says, well, you messed up, you better figure it out and go make amends. Shame says you are the mess up. And so don't say anything, disappear, hide, blame whatever you got to do, but don't acknowledge it. Cause if they see you, they won't love you. So it's, it's the way that we view ourselves in the context of the emotion that makes it either guilt or shame. And so guilt says, Hey, you messed up. Okay. I got to go apologize to my wife and I'm going to go say, I'm sorry and recommit and get mm. moving again. Wow. Whereas shame would put me in one of those three shame screens and then we'd be disconnected for weeks or months at a time. How dare you? Now, now I'm curious, kind of backing up. we I derailed us, I will admit, uh, my guilt. Uh, I, I derailed us off of your three, I know, uh, I, I derailed us from the three C's. You were talking originally about context, and I'm curious, we might have accidentally already gotten into the, or maybe not accidentally, maybe it was our point, uh, gotten into the second C, I have a feeling, about understanding then what they're feeling and how to move forward. But I, I'm curious, are we already moving in that direction for whatever the second C is, or do you want to back up and, and kind of finish sure, let's, that let's, off? Sure, let's, let's, let's cover those two things. I think they'll all kind of tie together. Uh, the, the second C for, for shame resiliency is courage. And the way Brene Brown defines courage is to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. So when we're in shame, the last thing we want is for people to see us. So what we have to do is we have to find safe places and safe people to actually share the vulnerable parts of ourselves. And that's why when you go to like an addiction recovery meeting, one of the most powerful things about any of those meetings is, is that you look around the room and somebody else is going, me too. I see you. Like you're not alone. Like you're okay. Or like one of my favorite things in the world is in my in my groups that I do. I sometimes have them do projects, and a guy will come and in his group he'll share, say his inventory of all the ways that he's acted out in his life, and he thinks that everyone's going to hate him afterwards. And afterwards, there's guys standing up and giving him a hug, and they're crying with each other, and they're saying, "I love you," and "Me too," and and instantly they have that fracture of that belief happen where there's an emotionally corrective experience there by telling my story. It actually is the thing that I'm most afraid of doing. If I'm, if I tell it to the right people in the right places, it does more to fracture my false belief system than just about anything else. And so I want to find a good team and build a good team. And, the, and a good team member makes up a person who will be willing to learn with you what you're going through someone who will keep your, your information confidential, someone who will push on you to change, but accept you just as you are. And then someone who will respect your choice and your agency. And if, if you can develop a few people in your life that way, where you can share those stories, man, we're really lucky people when we have a few people like that in our lives. And life is a lot more rich and a lot more beautiful when we have that. So the, the second, the third C is compassion. And we talked a little bit about that already, but it's the idea that we've got to start moving from a fuel source of doubt and fear and shame to a fuel source of love. And so every time that I feel, com I feel some sense of shame and for us, we all experience it differently. But for me, it's like this pit in my stomach, my head dips and my shoulders start to drop. And I feel like I want to shrink away. Every time that I feel shame, I've got to replace that with the practice of compassion for myself first and then for others meaning I'm going to start offering grace to myself and other people 
to be human and to allow myself to start to believe that mm -hmm. I'm a good person who makes mistakes and can change rather than I'm a bad person who can't be trusted. And when I can, when I can start to develop and practice that practice of self-compassion, which if your listeners are listening, go to, um, if you go to selfcompassion.org, it's Kristen Neff's work. There's all mm. sorts of different wow. things That's, that you can do practices. That is and awesome. I love that. You take Thank you, Henry. I actually forgot my ADHD brain taken over. Uh, I had forgotten all about the three C's and now, uh, now, now we got all three of them. Yes, of course. Um, and I need the context. <laughs> Have compassion on yourself. <laughs> Oh, yeah, By the no, way, I'm, be, I'm becoming just dangerous enough, you know, to myself <laughs> um, and others because I'm sitting here scribbling I, Tyler, really, down everything. This has been absolutely <laughs> amazing. Like, oh, gonna use that. I, oh, you're gonna one, use I, that. My favorite conversations <laughs> that we've had with someone on, and um, I'm really glad that we didn't do the banter at the beginning. We just dove right in because uh, really maximizing the time. So I, you touched on something with 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 um, with that second C on courage that I wanted to ask about, which is you know surrounding yourself with loved ones who you can share those stories with. What I want to ask is for the loved one, what can they do and how should they respond uh, to, you know, help, and when they are trying to help a loved one uh, identify or process and, and build shame resiliency? Good question. So I know this sounds almost stupid, but the best thing that you can do to be a good team member is to be doing your own work on shame resiliency, because when you're able to connect to the emotions of another person, meaning you've got to connect to your own darkness as well, if we can tolerate our own darkness, then we can lean in with somebody else and be in that space with them. And that's what empathy really is. So the way that we start to practice empathy is first, we should be doing our own work in terms of the shame resiliency stuff that we're talking about. But secondly, one of the best, I mean, think about the times when you've got the most support from somebody. It's not when you go to them and then they lay out a perfect plan for you and be like, you're going to do this, then you're going to do this, then you're going to do this. No, it's really more about going to somebody and they offer their presence. And it's their presence that allows you to reflect your own feelings. It allows them to hold it for a minute and it allows you to get into your better self and find the right answers. So a team member is best served if they can be curious, if they can ask curious questions if they can allow space for answers that might not they might not totally agree with without shutting them down, if they can look for kernels of truth in those answers and reflect those pieces of truth back, that's what a good team member does because then they're still leaving the ball in your court to go make your own decisions, but now you're doing it with a little bit of structure and a little bit of support and the demonstration of understanding that regardless of what I choose, I know I've got somebody who loves me, who supports me, and who's may even disagree with what I choose, but they're still going to love me. And uh, I think that that's, you know, we think about that with our own children, you know, think about what we do to our own kids. You know, we all mess our own kids up pretty bad. I've, I've already <laughs> don't worry, I may give you a call one of these EMDR days. So you can... They don't want to do it. And I'm sure it's because it's me that they're going to have to do it over. Um, <laughs> you know, but again, <laughs> it's a... Yeah, but, but but like with our kids, like we 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 bring them into this world and we instantly think that they're perfect and then we train them up to be perfect. And then when they're not perfect, then we're disappointed. And then we feel like failures as parents when in reality, if we were to bring them into the world and say, you know what, you are not perfect. In fact, you got lots of flaws, but you're also really wonderful and you have the capability for growth mm. and you are worthy of love regardless of what your faults are. Look at what that would do for that child. That child would be able to step into the world and they'd have permission to go be creative and make mistakes and do their learning and their growing. And uh, yeah, and absolutely. I think that that's what I we're love that. And I think is to there's something that you said there that is, so that learning I mean, that I say something is the main point of what you said, this idea of doing your own Man. work. Um, it, it, I had never realized the connection here until you just shared that. But um, so quick context on me. My, my dad passed away when I was 17 of a heart attack. And, um, at his funeral, I gave, um, you know, my own eulogy as the youngest son, I kind of spoke on behalf of myself and my siblings, cause I was the one who did the most public speaking out of us. And, uh, I share, I chose to share funny memories and moments from my dad's life and interactions I had with him. And, and I didn't cry during that point. One of the, one of the meanest things, one, literally the meanest thing that has ever been said to me 
was someone who basically said, someone close to me at the time who had said, uh, when you didn't cry at your dad's funeral, I thought you were trying to make it all about you. And it was like, you didn't even care that your dad had died. And now fast forwarding, it's been over, it's been a decade and a half now, uh, or sorry, a decade, 10 and a half years. So a decade and a half a year. Um, the, uh, a really, really close friend of mine, his dad tragically died um, in a hit and run. And he was sitting at my house just a few weeks, you know, a few weeks later, and he was in the process of moving uh, back home. Oh. And we sat down and, and talked in, in my kitchen for a bit. And he just shared with me his journey. And I was able to connect with him. And it wasn't so much that I laid out a plan of here's what you're going to do, or here's what you need to do. But rather, um, I laid out a, um, here's what you can expect in the journey that you're about to have. Here are some of the things that you, that you have. And one thing that you may find is that this is your story, not someone else's. And so others may try and tell you how you should grieve or how you should process this. And I was like, barring you actually hurting yourself or hurting someone else, no one has the right to tell you when you're allowed to cry over this and when you're not. And that kind of connection and being able to tell him because I had done the work in myself, being able to, to walk with him through his journey and be present there with him was one of the most impactful things I think in that, you know, that, that I could have done for him. And it's the same thing when you've dealt with your own shame, you're better able to connect with others who are, who are, who are building resilience and, and identifying their own. So I just thank you for that. I, I hadn't made the connection personally, and, and I thought that was really high value and something that, that I hope others can connect with as well. Um, so yeah, I, anyway, chance to respond with either of you if you want. I don't want to just jump into the last couple questions here. I was just going to say with what your example was, like you just outlined so many of those, you, you did the, you did the sea of context for your friend. You showed presence with your friend. You offered a, not, you not necessarily the to-do list, but some context for him. And then, and then you were able to be there with him. And I can imagine that was extremely valuable to him, but I can also imagine that because of your willingness to share yourself and your story, it was also valuable for you mm. to share it for yourself. And uh, that's the beautiful thing about vulnerability shared in the right way is that it edifies both people. It's, it's when I'm able to be in my own darkness and be with you in your darkness, both of us walk away feeling a deeper sense Henry, of love any thoughts and connection. Here? And it's weird because that's the place where we'd expect connection the least. And it's often where we get it the most. Well, and that, and that brings up, I was just going to say that just brings up a thought to me is that, you know, we, I think all three of us are, are persons of faith. Uh, and while we know a lot of our listeners aren't necessarily that, and that's perfectly fine, uh, you know, I've been going through this context, courage and compassion. And I, and I wonder, Tyler, if you can speak to, is this something that is only done on an individual to individual level? Or is this something or are there ways to effectively do it on a community level? And what I mean by that is, let's, let's just be honest, when we think about religion, when we think about church, often these communities are some of the least safe or are the least well performing at context, courage, and compassion. Um, and I, maybe it's just naivety on my part, but I really, I don't want it to stay that way. I, I really do feel, I mean, that's easy for me to say, cause I'm a pastor and I work in that field, but is, is there a way that as a community, we can start modeling this safely? Cause you don't want to just be like, now nah, we're just going to implement all three of these things, knowing that <laughs> there's probably unsafe people still in that community. But I'm just curious what your thoughts are as to community grappling with this versus just individual to individual level. Should we even try that? Or is this something we just need to encourage on a personal level? Well, that's a really good question. I Maybe I'll just share a personal story with you to try to illustrate my answer here. I, through the course of my own problems, you know, I went, I'm basically in recovery from my own sexual addiction right now uh, for the last 15 years part of my process with that was, is that I kind of pulled away from the rigid way that I was taught religion and I pulled away from the church and I went through kind of a really angry situation where I didn't believe in going to church or any Christian principles. And it was just part of the process for me. And I think it's normal for most of us to have those questions. And, uh, and what I came all the way full circle to is I started back with faith and said, where do I want to start and what do I believe? And I started to build my faith back out and it landed me back in the same church that I had just left. But now 
I go to church with a different mindset. And the idea is this, is that many of us, when we've been hurt by these institutions, we pull away and then we hate them and we want to tear them down. When in reality, what I think we could better do is if we were, if we were shame resilient ourselves, we could step back into those places and help things go right. And that's, that's what I see myself doing in my church community is I'm there to help things go right, to try to shift some of the culture, to say, hey, look, this, what we have here is worth fighting for. It's like a, it's like a good marriage, you know, um, for me, my marriage to my church or my religion is not perfect. We have struggles, I have disagreements, I have questions, but I love it enough to fight for it. And the way that I can fight for it is I can go with a loving heart and I can provide a different perspective than maybe the way that I was raised. And if we have enough people who are willing to lean themselves back in, that's how we shift the culture. And so, yeah, it sounds like in your community, you have some influence. You're in a place of a position where you can have some influence. And that's for me in my practice. One of the things that I do is I, I'll talk to any church leader anytime for no charge. I'll take them to lunch. I'll do whatever I need to do to talk with them because I believe that they're going to be able to have more influence than than I can in a one-on-one -on -one basis. And so, yeah, you start living those principles. You start teaching those principles you're going to have a, you're, the people attending your church are going to be really mm. lucky Powerful. to have that. Thank you for sharing that. And that and, will be something um, new. As we are kind of closing out here, I do want to, for the way I, that most of I us do want to ask raised. one question. It's a question that um, I like to ask every guest, yeah. which is uh, what's a, and there are two ways I ask it. And I asked it when I sent you the outline, which is either what's a question that you always wanted to be asked or what's an answer that you've always wanted to give and what question gets you there. Right. So, um, you know, what you chose and I, and I, so I'm, I'm excited to hear this answer is who will you be when you are living a shame resilient life? And I think this is a great positive note to end on too. Excellent. Yeah. I, I like the positive side of this because shame is such a heavy topic that we can get sucked into that feeling of, of like, oh, I'm bad and this is horrible and it's terrible. But the truth is, is that shame is just a part of life. And when we learn these principles of resiliency, the world becomes vibrant and colorful. We start to experience deeper levels of peace in our lives. We get to experience the ability to take more risks in our lives because we know that those risks are going to be learning opportunities instead of defining moments for us. We learn to have the fruits of peace and joy. And ultimately what shame resiliency produces is a lifestyle of connection. It leads to a deeper connection mm. with our spirituality and our higher power. It leads to a deeper connection in our marriages and with our children and at our workplace. And ultimately it leads to a better sense of confidence in Amazing. who we are and knowing who I we love are it. and giving well, ourselves permission um, to continue Tyler, to Tyler, thank you so much for being on. Henry, I, I want to give you the chance here too. To I know I've talked a lot. Do you have any, we anything were. you want to add here? Any, any final thoughts for listeners? Uh, first of all, thank you, Tyler, for your for sharing your knowledge and and again reaching out. Uh, Ryan and I, especially want to. We can't really take credit. You somehow and the and the journey of the internet found us and, and reached out. And once Ryan brought it up to me, he's like, "Well, check out some of this content." And, and I'll be honest, I had not actually heard of you uh, prior to your reaching out, but now I'm just like, "Oh man, I am so glad God aligned it." where we ran into each other. I can remember the first video and, and there is this reason why I'm segueing to this. Uh, the first video I saw of yours was actually on the love strong side of your podcast. And it was actually you sharing your testimony. I said, Oh, what a great way to, to start. Cause I want to know sure. what makes this Absolutely. guy tick. And, and I remember it's probably about, we'll probably put the link to that in the description below, by the way, remind, remind me, Ryan, because I think this is really powerful to speaking to the fact that you're not just giving advice. You've had to live through this um, through a, a very powerful way. And I remember you're about 10 minutes in and you're giving a testimony kind of where it, you didn't phrase it as reaching rock bottom, but I think you realized your shame just had to be broken. And it's a story where you're on the interstate and some things, I don't want to spoil it for people to go watch. Um, but, but it was a visual that really stuck with me for two reasons. One, cause you were choking up as you were saying it, I could see the raw emotion of someone who's been grappling with this. So I'd like to say, uh, if you don't get it enough, thank you for demonstrating that courage. You were not only providing context, but you were demonstrating as Renee Brown says that courage, the one that stands in the ring, she opens that book. My own therapist had me read a lot of Brene Brown 
you know, quoting Teddy Roosevelt there at the beginning, who's standing in the field. And, and you were talking about being on the interstate and having to split off for work. Um, and all you could see was the tail end of the ponytails of your daughters in the back seat. And if people are like, what is he talking about? Watch the video. Um, but I, I just want to thank you so much for the courage that you have had to undertake to, to reach a point where you're still investing in people, where you can come and share this, these very practical and important steps. And, and, and more than the courage, I just want to thank you for your heart, uh, for others, uh, for us to even share this time. But I, I knew this was going to be, I didn't know how great, but I knew this was going to be good when I saw your heart in that video. And, and then other things I watched. And I think that really speaks highly to the journey you're on. And I think also uh, speaks to the compassion and the success that can be found if we deal with shame, because I, I, I know we're still, it's an ever evolving journey, but I, I see it in a lot of the content you've produced. And so I, I just want to thank you for giving of yourself in that way and fighting that battle and, and giving us and hopefully our listeners hope that, you know, we too can find resiliency yeah, when um, it comes Tyler, to shame. Any final so I just thoughts want to from you as take well a public opportunity to thank you so much for, for doing that. Well, thank you, Henry. I appreciate that. No, I was just going to say to what you were saying, Henry, that that's one of the beautiful things about our darkest places is that the darkness, when we feel like we're getting crapped on, eventually that crap becomes fertilizer and it becomes the way that we get to influence other people. And in my mind, in my mind, maybe the most important thing about any one of our lives is, is that the only thing that makes our life meaningful is that we have experience that allows us to, <clears throat> to have meaning in somebody else's life. And whatever the darkness is that your listeners are going through, understand that this is a way, an opportunity to grow into some way that you're going to have an impact on the life mm. of another Amen. person if you will well, let with it. that, that's what Tyler, thank you so much for being on. And once again, if you are wanting to connect to with Tyler and, and connect with what he's people. doing or his podcast, we're, we're leaving a link to Love Strong as well as links to any other anything else like uh, selfcompassion.org as well. It was mentioned earlier in, in his testimony and and you know whatever else we can think of to add in here we are but i'm going to connect specifically to love strong because i think that's the central hub here that you can connect with everything else uh you can find all three of his podcasts therapy brothers uh, the wandering therapist and wholehearted there you can find out how to connect with him if you're interested in in beginning that journey of, of therapy and counseling and you can also find information on the rising sun conference so really honestly central hub for everything tyler thank you so much and we're praying for you as as you continue through your journey your personal journey and professional and we're just so grateful we had you on, man. And to our listeners, thank you so much for being on the journey. And we'll see you next time.